Good morning. As a church right now, we are walking through an exploration of God's moral boundaries. And it's really important that um, I don't want to spend a lot of time. We laid the foundation last week for why we're going through that using the, the template of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. But it's really important that we do understand this as we go into, into this. Most of the boundaries that God gives us um, don't really make a lot of sense to us from our perspective. They're given to us not just as a list of do's and don'ts, not just a list of here's some things you might want to work into your life, might be a good idea. Here's some things you probably shouldn't do. These might not be a bad idea. It's so much deeper than that. These are windows into the heart of God. These are things that he knows about us and how he designed us. It's clues about who he is and who we are and who he's wanting to make us into. And so our search for where does God stand on certain things? What kind of moral boundaries does he draw? What is off limits? What are the things he wants us to focus on? Is really about trying to see things his way trying to see God's perspective on everything, on life and who we are. It's so much deeper than just a list of to-dos and a list of to-don'ts. And from the beginning, God has always wanted complete salvation for every nation. This is one of the things that is so clear throughout Scripture. And again, on the surface, if we just stay on the surface, the Old Testament and the New Testament can look really different. And, and it throws people off and it confuses people. It seems like sometimes there's almost two different gods. But it, once you dig below the surface, once you stop just looking for lists and simple answers and you start trying to see God himself and the, his heart and what he's really offering to us and why and how, then you start seeing all this beauty and you start seeing how it not only harmonizes, but it's all one great, big, beautiful picture. It all points to Jesus and it all points to the stuff on this side of Jesus that he wants for us. And so, in a nutshell, here's where we went last week. The tabernacle in the Old Testament looked kind of like this. It's the simplest diagram you can ever get of it. But there was one entrance that symbolized to them that there's only one way to get to God. Whatever he says is the only way you can get there. You can only approach him on his terms. For us, we know that that represents Jesus. The only way, the only truth the only life. Next thing you'd pass, and this is where we explored mostly last time, was the sin altar. This was where you had to approach God with your tithes and your offerings and a blood sacrifice. There was no possibility of forgiveness of sin without blood, without death. That had to be paid by someone or something. That was how God decreed it. That's how it had to be. And this sacrifice, this altar burned all day long. The fire was never allowed to go out. No matter what time of the day, you could look. You can even see it kind of glowing from a distance. If you walked by the entrance, you could look through. And the reason that fire was always burning is it was a constant reminder of two things. One, you can always approach God. But you can only approach him on his terms. He makes the rules, not us. But the whole tabernacle was this big picture that kind of showed us the layers, the different stages of how we approach God. We get closer and closer. We, we find atonement for sin the way he's prescribed it. And for us, that's just Jesus. We, we, we find the cleansing. That's where we're going to go mostly today, the cleansing that's represented by the basin. It gets deeper and deeper. And in the very center was the actual tangible presence of God on earth. 
And fast forward to where we are today. This, this is us now. We are the tabernacles. The Bible clearly tells us that now God lives in us. If we surrender to him, if we approach him his way, then he comes to live in us. And wherever we go, he goes. And this is why it matters so much that we keep ourselves pure. And it's why it matters so much that we get the things done that he wants done. God's plan was always to do two things. There's three things here at the beginning I really want to, I want you to say out loud with me. These are, these are just big points. If you get these, I think you're going to get the whole rest of this. And if you don't, I'm going to lose you. And that, I don't want that to happen. I, that would scare me. Today, what we're talking about today is way too important. But say this out loud with me. Also, if you're, if you're keeping notes, you can do that. The back of that prayer list is also the, the insert that get, you could keep, keep track of where we're going. You can take notes, fill in blanks. But the reason those inserts are there is so that you can take those prayer lists home and pray over them. I hope you do that. And the reason that the other side has all the Bible scriptures and everything else on there is so that you can revisit these ideas with God on your own. I hope and pray you do that whether you take notes or not. But anyhow, let's go. Ready? Together. God's plan is to transform us. This has always been his plan since the fall. He made us in his image. When that got broken, he's always been wanting to make us again, to remake us in his image. Second thing, God wants to set us free to do his will on earth. Some of the moral boundaries he draws are really about things that just he hates and he doesn't want us to do it. There are things that really do make God sick and there are things he loves. But a lot of them, a bunch of the moral boundaries are there just so that we aren't distracted from getting the things he really cares about done. A lot of them, it's, it's not even so much that he hates this thing he said don't do as much as it's about that he really loves this other thing he said to do. And he knows if we get into this other thing, it's going to absorb us and distract us and we'll never be able to do that. No matter what, this is his will to set us free to do his will on this earth. And the third huge idea I hope we can get all the way through today is this. Grace and love require 100% commitment. Let's say that again together. This is important. Grace and love require 100% commitment. Grace if, is nothing if all it is is to a stranger you go, fine, whatever, do what you want. That's not grace. That's apathy. That's not caring about them at all. Grace is when you love somebody, you're locked into a lifelong relationship with this person and they've done something unspeakably painful to you and you still stick with that commitment. Grace requires 100% commitment or it's not even grace and the same with love. And this is true in the old covenant, the new covenant is true across the board. And even though Jesus has paid our atonement once and for all, he still asks us to give everything to him on a daily basis. So once again, read with me Romans 12, 1 through 2. And pay attention to the words in this because it's so clear, but if we just kind of mumble through it, we might miss something really important, but it's so clear. Let's say it together. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't 
copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Other than my relationship with Jesus Christ himself, the thing that has changed me and transformed me over the years more than anything else has been my relationship with my wife. And I love her, and I thank God for her every day. But we're totally different people than we used to be. We just, as of last Tuesday, we've been married now for 25 years. That's a long time. And, and the thing is, if you knew us then, and many of you did, you would know that we're really different. We have been changed. We have been changed and in, in, in completely. We have been transformed. And not only that, we've been set free to do things that we never would have imagined for ourselves or for each other 25 years ago. And that is why marriage is so important. It's a picture of what God wants to do in all of us. That's why it's so holy to him. It's why we spend so much time as a church doing things like a marriage retreat that's about to come up and to come up really soon. It's why, by the way, let me take this moment to just invite you. There's a chili and hot dog supper or lunch today right outside, right after we finish the second service in Sunday school. There's even gluten-free options and vegetarian options. Uh, it, there's no minimum charge, but if every penny of whatever you throw in there to donate to is going to help pay down the marriage retreat, make it a little more affordable because we as a church love marriage and we want to support that. We want to strengthen those relationships. So there's that plug. Let's come back in. You ready? We made a commitment, a once and for all commitment at the beginning when we got married. But what's kept us together has been a daily over and over, sometimes daily, nightly, sometimes every hour recommitment to each other. And that's where the grace comes in. That's where the love comes in. And that's where the transformation comes in. And that's where the freedom to do all the things that God has laid before us comes in. And all of this and so much more was represented by the basin in the tabernacle. The tabernacle's priests, when they first became priests, had to go through a ceremony where they were consecrated at the basin. This happened once. It was only one time, but they had to be completely washed, completely cleansed in the waters of the basin. And then they could be officially made priests. From that day on, they didn't have to redo that. That wasn't something they had to do all the time, but something they had to do literally every day as they walked between the altar and the holy place was to re-immerse their hands and their feet sometimes into this basin. And this was the way that God said they would be cleansed. This would allow them to approach him, approach his presence. And that this was so important. This was something they had to do every single day. And as the day went by, I shared this idea not too long ago. I hope this is familiar to you. But as the day would go by, the altar was basically a mixture between a slaughterhouse and a grill. So you can imagine how nasty and gross they got as the day went on. And imagine what the basin must have looked like and smelled like as the day went on. It was obviously not physically cleansing them. It was just about the obedience and the trust it was just about recommitting every single time. Yes, I'm going to follow you, God. I don't understand this. That smells terrible, but I'm going to do what you said. Oh, wow, that's nasty. Okay, but it's you. Let's do this again. It was all about the trust, all about the obedience. 
and all about the reminder that there is no such thing as cheap grace. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you haven't, you should. He's a great writer. Um, he's got a book called The Cost of Discipleship. I want to read a few lines from that. I'd like the one, you to read the ones that are on the screen with me because I want these to burn into your heart and soul as well. Read with me. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In other words, what he's trying to say, if you read between the lines, is there is no such thing as cheap grace. There is nowhere in the Bible that says that God, for any reason, ever will just kind of wave off sin. There is nowhere in the Bible that indicates for any reason that some sins are kind of okay with him. He understands. He gets it. That's hard. Maybe that's especially hard for you. Maybe you're just wired that way somehow. It's all right. There is nowhere in the Bible that gives us that. There's, that's not an option anywhere. And to say that there is, is to say we don't need the cross, that we don't need to actually follow Jesus, which means he makes the rules that we live by. It, to, to say that there is cheap grace is to say that there, we don't need Jesus himself. We certainly don't need him living and incarnate in our lives. Because that's where the power is. That's where the change is. That's where the transformation is. That's where we're set free to follow him. And without 100% commitment to let him make the rules and define every part of us, there just isn't grace. There isn't love. To say that you are trying to experience God's grace or that you love him is just a lie. James flat out says this. Bonhoeffer continues. I'm reading exactly his words here. I want to give him full credit. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field, the pearl of great price, the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Read with me. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It costs a man his life. It condemns sin. And above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. If you're not picking up on this, there's two huge ideas. There's not a slide for them, there's, but you've got to get these, okay? Sin is a big deal to God. And you know what's even a bigger deal? is righteousness. There are some sins that he just hates, period, and there are some sins he only hates because he wants the righteousness done. But those are huge, and we simply cannot be his followers without letting him define what is righteous and what is sin. We can't truly follow Jesus without remembering that he said, if you love me, obey my commandments. We can't really truly follow God unless we understand that one of the most repeated sentences in the entire Bible is the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That is the starting point. That is it. So again, as we approach him, we're trying to figure out what are his moral boundaries? How do we follow those? If we're trying to get to him to fit into things we already think or want him to say, it's never going to work. We have to start, what does he say? What does he want? 
And that's where we can somehow, some way, get some. And there's hope of actually being transformed to be like him. Back to the basin. Everything in the courtyard of the tabernacle was made out of bronze. Because bronze represents atonement and cleansing. That's just, that's a really cool image. And, and God thought through every single thing. But there's even a deeper thing about the, the it's also called the labor. By the way, in case you're, you're confused, sometimes labor means like a ladle. But, but uh, if you're ever reading different versions of the Bible and trying to get deeper, which is a great thing to do, the bronze basin, the bronze labor, etc., it's all the same big deal. But this, this thing, it was made specifically out of bronze mirrors. Back then, they didn't have glass and silver on the back like we have for mirrors. They would just get pieces of bronze and polish them and polish them. And this is what especially the women would use as excuse me, mirrors. So they, what they did was they donated all of their mirrors and melted them down to create the basin. There's a deep symbolism in that. It's actually the same symbolism as one of the most misunderstood and misquoted verses in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 3, where he says that women's beauty should not come from outward adornment, uh, braided hair and jewelry and things like that, but from the inner things. And a lot of people have tried to make that shallow. They've tried to make that all about a to-do list and a to-don't list. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's saying, you know what really matters? It's not what you think of yourself how you measure yourself, how you compare yourself to someone else. What really matters is not that people think, wow, she's really put together today, or what is wrong with her. That is not the issue. The issue is what does God think about you? And melting down all those mirrors and just giving up the ability to look at your refraction every day and let that be what the cleansing basin is made out of is what that's telling us. The only thing that really matters is God's perspective. This was also true of the much bigger, much more elaborate version of the basin that was in the temple of Solomon. That one was called the sea. I'll share more about that on another time. Here's one more huge idea we've got to get to keep on going where we're going today. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Would you say that out loud with me? Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. His actual quote was, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Here's what he meant. He, w- he wasn't trying to erase that. He wasn't trying to say the Old Testament doesn't matter. All those laws are completely irrelevant. All those pictures and everything just don't even matter anymore. All the things God poured out his heart through in the words of the prophets is just kind of, well, that was then, this is now. That was not Jesus' intention. What he was saying is, I want you to see all of that through the complete lens that I'm finally going to reveal to you. Me as your Messiah, me as your Savior, I want you to see all of it and see what it was all pointing to. That it was all pointing to me and what's going to be available to everyone else from this point on if they approach God on his terms. I want you to get that this is it. We're fulfilling it all. Everything that they were dreaming about and talking about, writing songs about. It's all right there. All the moral boundaries, all the lists, everything is right there. This is what it's about. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And that is why we can now approach God with confidence. 
all the way through the sacrifice, which he paid for us, all the way through the basin, which is how he cleanses us. Deep, deep symbolism involved with baptism there. But we can come all the way into the holy place and even into the holy of holies, and eventually we can bear his presence inside of us because Jesus has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Do you see the beauty? Do you sense the power? Do you see what he's offering to us? This is so much bigger than lists. This is so much bigger than judging ourselves against ourselves or any measurement ever or against each other. This is so much more powerful, so much deeper than that. I hope you see it. Because this is where the transformation goes. And as we start to look now today in the next several weeks, as we really start digging into a couple of different uh, boundaries that he's given us and what we're supposed to do about that and as, uh, help each other through, I hope that you grab this. So would you read with me once again? This is Paul writing in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And again, pay attention. Don't just mumble through this because you might miss something important. This is every word is crucial here. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. The ultimate fulfillment of the basin is baptism. And baptism is only as important as it is. It's treated as a given by this passage and so many others in Scripture. It's only important because it shows that we are united with Christ in his death, his burial, and resurrection. And that's where the transformation comes. That's where the freedom to live out his will comes. That's where the 100% commitment is displayed and shown and, and revealed for once and for all. All of this is tied up in there. Paul writes to the Corinthians. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Need to clarify one thing before we go any further. The phrase that we translate, those who do wrong, it means those who keep doing it. Those who define themselves by that. Here's, here's one way I, I know to explain this. If, if, you, if a kid, a generally honest kid, uh, steals a candy bar from a gas station, they get in trouble, they give it back, or they pay for it. it it's this big deal. It's, it's a thing. You could call that kid a thief, but that kid is not a thief. That does not define that child. That he, This is who he is. He's a thief. But if you get someone who chooses to become part of a gang, or some sort of organized crime organization, and their job in that organization is to steal. And they spend every waking moment trying to get better and better at it, and trying to steal as much as they can, and train other people to do that. They find their identity in, their, in thieving. Are you with me? 
That's a whole nother level. And when it says those who continue to sin, those who do wrong, it's talking about any of these sins, not that someone had, did it, not that we were tempted to do it, not any, it, it's saying we define ourselves, we keep doing it. We unrepentedly define ourselves by these sins. This is who we are. We have somehow convinced ourselves there is such a thing as cheap grace in this one area. God says he can't forgive anything without blood except you know what this thing i'm pretty sure he's okay with he just kind of it's not his favorite that's not available to us once again i'm going to just read straight through here don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of god don't fool yourselves those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. Listen. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And you say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Two big mistakes most Christians make about sin, any sin, anywhere. The sins on this list, the sins on many other lists we find in the Bible. Here's the two mistakes we make. Number one, we either say, Wow, everything on that list we've got to demonize and punish. We've got to take responsibility to make sure we're the ones who, who make them pay. We're the ones who stand up and mm, 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 we're going to get those guys. That's not what it's asking us to do here. The other mistake is we say, you know what? I know somebody who steals. Pretty sure it can't be that bad. Do you understand? Neither one of those is an option to us. And specifically about sexual sin, any sexual sin, okay? Let's not pretend that any of it is okay with God. Any flavor of sexual sin at all is not okay with God. Look at what he says in verse 18. I'd like you to read this one and the next one with me out loud. He says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And look at the verse that's right next to this. It's the heart verse of this whole series about tabernacles. Look, this is where we get this. This isn't some weird disconnected idea. Oh, you should also follow these rules. This is all connected. This is the heart of the whole thing. This is all one big idea. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. So what are we supposed to do? How do we help each other through this? As Christians, how do we keep ourselves pure? And how do we help others become pure? This is something that is a struggle for me as a person a lot. Because I don't like confrontation. I don't know about you guys, but I really don't. I'll jump through just about any hoop ever to keep from having to confront somebody about something. I'm embarrassed about that. I'm repenting of that. I'm, not con I'm confessing that to you. I'm not saying, oh, that's how I am. I'm embarrassed about that. 
I'm trying to change, and I'd like you to pray. But Jude, Jude has some great advice. We're going to start wrapping up. We're going to turn a corner here. This is some great advice for all of us. Whether you're caught in sin or whether you're trying to help someone you love escape it, Jude, verses 20 and following, has some amazing stuff, some very practical stuff to tell us. And then we're going to offer an invitation to you this morning. But would you read with me in Jude? Uh, Again, I, I, I love to have your voice say these things out loud because I want you to get it. I want you to hear it. I want God. There's something powerful in just speaking God's word aloud. So I really want you to say these with me as well. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. So you see, we're supposed to build each other up, pray for each other. We're supposed to show mercy, but we're also supposed to protect each other. Are you tracking? Here's some other really practical things. Keep reading with me. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Remember, faith in the scriptures is always not just something you think in your head, but obedience based on faith. There's no disconnect ever in scripture between something you believe and acting on what you believe. So someone whose faith is wavering is not that they're feeling some doubts, they're having some thoughts that they don't, some questions they're struggling with. It means that they are, they're not willing to keep obeying because they're struggling with it so much. Read that whole part with me again. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. And once again, we see, uh, uh, we, we come to an idea of a verse that's been really misunderstood a lot and misquoted a lot. This idea of hating the sin and love the sinner has become twisted somehow where people, they, they kind of say, well, you know, I love them. But boy, I hate that sin. And people feel that. And we don't have the same anger and the same distaste and the same, the same horror at all sins as we do for some sins. All of us are kind of different somewhere on a spectrum, which ones bug us the most. But when we say, oh, I love the sinner, but boy, I hate that sin. We're not getting the heart of what this is about. Something closer is this. How many have had somebody, you or someone in your family, or maybe your entire family be sick recently? Raise your hand. This is almost all of us, I believe. Somebody, there's just a bunch of junk going around, okay? And when when it's contagious and when it's gross, okay, you don't want to get anywhere near it, do you? We're willing when someone we love is sick to get really close to stuff we would never go near otherwise. We're willing to clean up unspeakable messes behind them. We're willing to comfort them in their suffering. We're willing to pamper them in ways we normally wouldn't be willing to pamper them. We're willing to do a lot because of that love. And yet at the same time, we're going to say things like, would you please cover that cough? Can you please wash your hands? Don't touch that food. Get back in your bed. Stop walking around spreading those germs. And it's out of love. It's trying to protect ourselves and the whole family. Are you with me? It's not about hate, and they know that, and they get that. But you're, you're so horrified by that sin that you're trying to protect them and the rest of your family 
from it. But the way that's demonstrated is in love, self-sacrificial love, cleansing the area, protecting, guarding. That's a completely different thing than hate and protesting and being angry, shaking your fist. Continue to read the last couple of verses of this passage. Judah's telling us to stay humble. Now, all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. No matter what we think or what we feel or what we've experienced in these areas of moral boundaries, as we go, not just the ones we looked at today, but the other ones, as we go through, the heart of it has to be what does God think? What is God's perspective? But I hope you get this. For true believers, true love includes helping each other stay pure. It's, it means helping each other connect and stay connected. Keep reconnecting to God and his will. Like that trip back and forth by the basin that the priest used to make. And I guarantee you that sin is never his will. It's never okay with him. It's never okay with him. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. This is so true. The only hearts that God will reject are prideful and unrepentant ones. I don't care how broken, how helpless, how lost you feel today. If you are broken, if you are repentant, he will accept you. And so will we as his people. That's the invitation today. And remember how Jesus said he fulfilled the law and the prophets? The tabernacle is all really tied up in the law. Here's one, one, one quick word from one of the prophets. The prophet Ezekiel. This is God speaking through him. And he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. This morning I hope that we can all together approach the throne of grace with confidence and we can if we approach it on God's terms and in his way. This area, you can call it what you want. You can call it a stage, the front of the building. You can call it a table. But this, this can be the throne of God himself because he's here. And if you're approaching him and you're bowing down before him and you're approaching him on his terms, that's available to you. This can be the basin, this whole area can be the basin where we come again for cleansing just by re-surrendering to say, okay, you make the rules, I don't. Please cleanse me one more time. I recommit. And this can be the altar. This is where you give him everything, the stuff he demands and the stuff you just want to give. Whatever you need to do this morning with him, would you come as we stand and sing?
Would you, if you would like to join our, our family, if you would like to give your life to Jesus for the first time, if you would like to recommit, if there's a specific sin that you know is keeping you from God, we invite you to come. If you just need prayer, would you come to the altar? Would you come and give him everything one more time?